0: It's the moments like this that make everything worth it. Your family supports you, and every everything that you sacrifice, every bad moment in this sport, every crash, every illness, everything that goes wrong, just one moment like this makes you forget about all of it, and th- this is why we do this for moments like today. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, Sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, welcome to episode 99 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a Semi-Pro Cyclist writes for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about the moments. It's all worth it. Hey there, Semi-Pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash run and yes we're getting today underway with a review great cycling resource five stars by the karma police 007 from the u.s this podcast is very informative even about topics that you think you know with so many true and false information out there this podcast has a fairly unbiased point of view on cycling related subjects it is motivating also karma police thank you very much for writing that review i do appreciate that you do think that i am Unbiased in some things Of course Some things piss me off But other things I let slide And try and present Everything So that you can make The decision for yourself And I'm not ramming it Down your throat And definitely A reminder to you That if you do Like the show I would love a review On iTunes Or Stitcher Because Five stars Makes me clap If you're happy And you know it, Clap your hands If you're happy And you know it, Yes, clap. Thank you very much. Now, a couple of great articles that I came across this week. The first one is a video. It's actually a presentation by Nigel Mitchell, and he is the nutrition guy for Team Sky, and it's about lessons from the Tour de France. He specifically is talking about hot weather because he's at a hot weather conference specifically for summer, and I got a lot of interesting tidbits out of this actual talk, and It's all centered around the goals that Team Sky set relating to hydration and health. So how they are linked together and hydration just doesn't stand on its own. He does touch on a couple of interesting things like the numbers from Milano San Remo. He talks about Sky's nutritional philosophy, which I'll run through them quickly. The first one is ensuring basics are covered well at all times. The second is focus on quality and then ensure riders arrive healthy and at race weight. Maintain overall health throughout the race. Maintain gut health during the race. Use cutting-edge nutritional products and dietary practices to maximize health and performance. And the final one, recovery is being able to perform when you need to perform. So he does touch on gut health, which is quite interesting because it is a biggie when you come to doing stage races or any type of training and maintaining consistency. And he talks about fluid absorption in the gut and other areas like bloating, diarrhea, cramping and gastro and how they go around avoiding those when they are training or racing. Which, by the way, he does say is caused by many factors, including getting contaminants from the road or the dirt onto bottles and getting it ingested that way, which is something I have always been cautious of myself, having heard horror stories from people picking up bugs and horrible things from dirty puddles on mountain bike tracks. But another interesting thing they do is monitoring specifically for hydration. So during the tour, each rider is weighed each morning and gives a waking urine sample to check for osmolality which was a brand new term to me and urine osmolality I'm sure I'm butchering it is a measure of urine concentration in which large values indicate concentrated urine and small values indicate diluted urine so on hard days they will also weigh in before and after a race or if a rider's weight is down and they're at one kg lighter or more and their urine has a high osmolarity which is concentrated urine they push more fluid aggressively and they work with these two together they don't just say because you're one kilo lighter we're going to do more fluid they actually look at the other indicator as well so what they've developed for each day of the tour is what they call a positive hydration strategy they go through and when they wake up they have 300 milliliters of juice and then with breakfast they're allowed to have water allowed to have coffee and they'll have vegetable juice as well on the way to the race itself a one and a half liter hydration drink is placed on each rider's seat they call this hydro juice which is a mix of 200 milliliters of juice to 800 milliliters of water the race food including rice cakes and their race drinks are slightly different they develop themselves and they push for one liter plus per hour And the makeup of the race drink is it's pH neutral, a mild flavor, and 10 millimoles of sodium. They also then go on to have a post-race drink, which is a hydration drink. And then they eat at the same time, having rice and potatoes. Then when they have their evening meal, they're drinking vegetable juice and before bed, a protein drink. So we're talking about 10 liters plus under this hydration strategy which seems like a lot but if they're monitoring it as well then you may actually have to have more to try and get your weight back up to where it should be. So I found this whole presentation really fascinating and at the end there was a couple of interesting things the first one someone asked him about beetroot juice and he says that they do not drink beetroot juice so that was interesting the second one is that he was absolutely open to ideas and suggestions so not saying that he's got this perfect and he would take any import from anyone that had better ideas than him especially because the room he was talking to was full of hot weather specialists so article two is a study called predicting cycling performance in trained elite male and female cyclists and it revisits the submaximal cycle test known as the Lambert's and Lambert submaximal cycle test, the LSCT, which has been shown to be able to accurately predict cycling performance in 15 well-trained cyclists so that was the previous test and you may remember that we have spoken about the LSCT I did an entire episode on it but for a reminder the LSCT has been developed with the purpose of monitoring and predicting changes in cycling performance so this test has been shown to be reliable and able to predict cycling performance and it's also been able to track changes in training But back to the study itself. The aim of the study was to take the last study one step further to determine the predictive value of the LSCT in 102 trained cyclists, where 82 were males and 20 were females. So all of the cyclists performed on a LSCT test followed a peak power output test which included respiratory gas for the determination of of maximum oxygen consumption, aka the VO2max test, and the LSCT followed by a 40-kilometer time trial test 72 hours later. So the average output during these three stages of the LSCT increased from 31 to 60 to 79% of peak power output, while the ratings of perceived exertion increased from 8 to 13 to 16. And it was shown that there is a very good relationship, or there are very good relationships found between actual and LSCT predicted peak power outputs and they are very good statistically they look very good Also, there were no gender differences found when predicting cycling performance from the LSCT, which is also another good sign. And the findings of this study show that the LSCT is able to accurately predict cycling performance in trained to elite male and female cyclists and potentially can be used to prescribe and fine-tune prescription in cycling. So again, this is more valid evidence that the LSCT is a great way to see where you are in relation to your training and to predict your performance. And for you to rethink where you can use it in your training. Okay, the nuts and bolts this week. How does running impact your cycling performance? Yes, and before you say it, this is 100% still a cycling podcast. We're not dipping our toe into duathlons or <clears throat> that other dirty word. But I have had a couple of requests recently from athletes about adding running to their cycling program. So I thought I'd take a bit of a deep dive into the issue, test out my own thoughts and understandings of the issue, as well as confirm or change your own. So let me start by saying that I believe running is good for cycling fitness-wise, but not efficiency or body-wise. We all know that the bang for your buck that running provides over shorter periods of time is far superior to cycling over the same periods of time. But let's start with a meta review called Physiological Differences Between Cycling and Running. It was published in March of 2009 in Sports Medicine. The purpose of this review was to provide a synopsis of the literature concerning the physiological differences between cycling and running. By compromising physiological variables such as maximal oxygen consumption, VO2 max, anaerobic threshold, heart rate and economy in triathletes, runners or cyclists, The review itself aimed to identify the effects of exercise modality on the underlying mechanisms which are ventilatory response, blood flow, muscle oxidative capacity, peripheral intervention and neuromuscular fatigue, of adaption. So the majority of studies that were looked at in this review indicate that runners achieve a higher VO2max on the treadmill where cyclists can achieve a VO2max value on an ergo similar to that in treadmill running so the vo2 max is specific to the exercise modality it was also found that the muscles adapt specifically to a given exercise task over a period of time resulting in an improvement in submaximal physiological variables such as the ventilatory threshold in some cases without a change in vo2 max however this effect is probably larger in cycling than in running because at the same time skill influencing motor unit recruitment patterns is an important Important influence on the anaerobic threshold in cycling. And they did come to the conclusion that there is more physiological training transfer from running to cycling than cycling to running, which is really interesting for cyclists. But in triathletes, there is generally no difference in VO2 max measured from being on the bike, on an ergo, and the treadmill running. There were also several other physiological differences between cycling and running addressed and heart rate is different between the two activities both for maximal and submaximal intensities. It also goes on to say that it has been shown that pedaling cadence affects the metabolic response during cycling but also during a subsequent running bout and central fatigue and decrease in maximal strength are more important after prolonged exercise in running than in cycling. So, one of the issues with the studies looked at in this review is that they mostly involve triathletes. There were some runners, there were some cyclists, but for triathletes, you're really talking about having to reach a high proficiency in both sports, running and cycling, and the use of both training modes is essential, as they must also rely on the benefit from one on the other, because you don't have the time to do full training for cycling and full training for running. But... For the athlete focusing on one event, which is us, it is still debatable that you should use other modes of exercise to help boost your performance. A general rule of thumb is that if you want to become a good cyclist, ride your bike. And that's kind of what I think about when you get to the specific end of your season. But I'll get there in just a moment because... While there is some benefit to run training and cycling fitness, it is not as good as spending the same time on the bike. So you really have to understand or ask yourself why you want to run and talk this through with yourself and your coach so you can come to a conclusion ...as to how that fits into your entire program. But there was one cyclist that was studied in Norway that decided to run in the off-season instead of ride. And obviously there was other factors here such as the weather. But I have touched on this study before and I brought this up as an article before in episode 90, the report episode... And for me, it kind of gives a little bit of hope if you are a single sport athlete and you choose to do another mode of training to try and boost performance. So the study, again, it's called Improved VO2max and Time Trial Performance with More High Aerobic Intensity Interval Training and Reduced Training Volume, a case study of an elite national cyclist. So as a reminder, it was an elite Norwegian cyclist that used running in his pre-season of course, like I kind of touched on it probably has a lot to do with the weather you just have to ask semi-pro athlete Alex how hard a Norwegian weather is and trying to maintain cycling throughout it so running was used as a substitute to cycling and the elite Norwegian cyclist tried a creative way of adapting to his situation he also took along researchers from three Norwegian institutions to oversee the experiment and document its effects, so this cyclist chose to attempt to increase his pre-season fitness compared to the preceding year by reducing his time on the bike and replacing a portion of that lost cycling time with high intensity running. The first thing to notice, if you do want to increase your performance, then following the taper protocol, then you knock off the volume and you increase the intensity. So this is exactly what he's doing here. But specifically, he did this between November and February and this athlete reduced his average monthly riding volume by 60%. So within this period, he inserted two blocks of high intensity interval run training, one block of 14 sessions conducted over the course of 9 days, while the second comprised of 15 sessions squeezed into 10 days. These intervals were performed at 90-95% to of his maximum heart rate not his threshold heart rate, his maximum heart rate. So they are really really hard sessions. So even with the partial substitution of running for cycling, the rider's total monthly training volume dropped by around 18% during this pre-season period. However, the amount of training he did in the range of 90 to 95% of his maximum heart rate increased by 41%. That is a huge jump. So to assess the effects of his experiment, the researchers overseeing it periodically tested his VO2 max cycling economy and time trial performance on an ergo. And as you might have expected, at the end of the pre-season training period, the subject's cycling economy was neither better nor worse than it had been at the end of the previous year's pre-season training period. However, this is the interesting bit. His VO2 max increased by 10.3% and his time trial performance was lifted by 14.9%, which is pretty impressive. It is kind of interesting that getting a boost like this at the start of the season may not have been beneficial over a really long season because if you come into February too high, it might be really hard to sustain that over the entire season. But that is a topic for another day. What the study really does clearly demonstrate though is that running is an effective form of cross-training for cyclists at least when it's done at high intensity. So these results were published in a journal, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, research and it does suggest that any cyclist has trouble training outdoors during winter and or reduce your training volume without sacrificing fitness and or you need a mental break from turning the cranks then you would be well advised to ride less and replace a fraction of your easy riding with fast running. But don't go and do it just yet because as a cyclist you have limitations though. If you've got a crappy Achilles tendon that prevents you from doing high intensity interval running you're still better off doing high intensity intervals on the bike instead. That says to me that if your body tends to break down when you try and run a lot and you're subjecting yourself to the additional pounding and the injury risk of running, then maybe it's not a good idea either because that's where the real danger lies for me. Once your body starts to break down and you, you get muscle and tendon damage, you're in real, real trouble. Much like any other type of cross-training or strength work, as long as running doesn't impede on your main training objectives, then you should be fine. But if you do overdo it, then there is a danger of added muscle trauma because running 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 is a sport with a high incidence of leg muscle trauma because of the repeated impacts associated with the sport. When cyclists add running to their programs, they begin to experience impact-related trauma to their leg muscles and the damage incurred by their muscles can actually interfere with function. So... It's unlikely that cyclist performance will really take off after they start running. That's if you can't handle it and your body can't keep up. So why does this impact take place? How are the muscles used differently in running to cycling? That's the pivotal question here because is running itself going to help your muscles and tendons when it comes to when you jump on the bike? Because cycling involves the rhythmical contraction of propulsive muscles, primarily the hamstrings, quads and the glutes. These different muscles contract to apply a push-pull force on the cranks of the bike propelling you forward and when one muscle group is not pushing or pulling, it's relaxing and then resting so it gets you ready to repeat the cycle again and again and again. And it's this relatively simple operation in which the joints just open and close and experience little impact and this is why cycling is considered such a low-impact sport. Running, on the other hand, is a totally different experience. Each time your foot hits the ground, muscles must contract rapidly with tremendous force to prevent you from collapsing on the ground and the first contraction is a bracing action. Then once the body is stabilized, then some muscles contract again in a dynamic action to propel the body forward. As the cycle continues, so does the impact on your body. So cyclists new to running who wish to cross train have to cope with two distinct concepts. First, they have to stop the body and your muscles must contract isometrically metrically and this means that the muscles neither lengthen or shorten but remain static. Isometric contraction is a different experience for people who primarily train on a bike and second, on a healthy cyclist, their joints are unaccustomed to the high level of impact experienced by runners and so they're not used to the shock load of several times your body weight when you're going down for that initial stopping action. So experienced cyclists over the course of many years of training have developed high efficient cardiovascular systems capable of operating at a high percentage of maximum intensity at VO2 max and lactic threshold etc so physiologically speaking your average cyclist should be able to run faster than your average runner because of their finely tuned cardiovascular system but in real life this really is not the case because structurally a cyclist development is way behind their runner counterparts and as you would know if you've gone out and smashed yourself on a 10 kilometer run and then couldn't walk for two weeks afterwards. So over time, just as cyclists have fine-tuned their cardio, runners have become experts in muscle, tendon, ligament, and bone conditioning. And that's why a cyclist who runs too hard too soon could end up out of action for so long. And a combination of structural muscle damage from the impact and the chemical byproducts from isometric contractions leads to what is known as Delayed onset muscle soreness. My good old friend, DOMS. And once you're doms you are absolutely in trouble because it takes so long to get back. Not because of the cyclist is out of shape, but because someone who only trains in a single discipline will experience physiological changes over time. For instance, during a pedal stroke, the angle of the ankle joint barely changes and as a result cyclists tend to develop tight calf muscles resulting in a shortening of the Achilles tendon. Running on the other hand demands a great deal of flexibility on the calf muscles and Achilles since the foot must be free to bend when running uphill for example. So during cyclist legendary inflexibility a cyclist new to running is likely to experience considerable discomfort in the lower leg and ankle on the onset of cross-training regime which an athlete i coach experienced this exact thing this week but running is likely to give cyclists some discomfort while the body adjusts you will find that running will strengthen sub muscles in your legs which plays an important part in maintaining your legs and body positioning so if you want four quick and dirty tips on how to reduce your chances of injury while running if you are convinced so far and you want to attempt it. Number one, focus on key running mechanisms through mobility and stability work. And areas worthy of detailed attention are hamstrings, quads, calves, ankles, ITBs, and hip flexors. And there is an episode that I've done, I can't remember the number, but I went through and how to get down and change the mobility of your ankles and your hips. Number two, start gently by using run walk intervals. It really is the best technique so you're not overloading your system and you're not tempted to go running for 60 minutes straight, which you probably could do, but the consequences could be disastrous. Number three, run in a straight line. Think about the movement of your body. Knees and arms should move as you propel forward so you don't sway excessively from side to side. It wastes energy, but you've got to land your feet straight. Otherwise, you are compromising different parts of your legs when you're landing. Number four, stay relaxed. Remember, in running, your legs mimic your arms. And if your arms are bunched up to your chest like a dinosaur, then your legs won't be stretched out either, reducing your efficiency. There are so many ways that we can talk about efficiency in running, but because it's a cycling podcast, I'm not going to get into it. But definitely you would be well advised to go and learn running as a skill. I believe it's a skill that you can learn. There are methods out there such as pose running that you can learn how to position yourself. Okay. So let's round this up then. What are the main takeaways? Well, how much running you do should be directed by two things, your running training age and the time of the season. So your running training age is important in working out how much running you do will affect your body and therefore your cycling because if you're a seasoned runner with a good foundation, then as long as you get in your big rocks of your training week, then I say go for it. Of course, you really got to monitor the situation. You don't want to overtrain certain zones. You want to keep an eye on injuries and you want to keep testing on the bike to see if you're improving. But outside of that, I don't see a problem with it. If you are new to running, or your body has forgotten what it's like to run, then I say proceed with caution. Definitely build up slowly using a walk-run interval system and keep an eye on your heart rate when you're training. It's really easy to overtrain your cardiovascular system as well as your body. So I'd spend time learning proper running technique as I've just spoken about, as I really do believe that running is a skill that must be learned. And once you can run a solid 30 to 60 minutes, then you can think about high heart rate, intervals as supplemental training to your intensity on the bike but before then too risky so this leads me to my second point time of the season and as we went through the norwegian study the off season really is a great place to start but the closer you get to your chosen event then I do believe the less running you should do. And really this is training 101 because it follows the specificity principle and the principle of periodization. And only in events like cyclocross is running going to be useful. Every other cycling event, probably not unless there's a hiker bike section in a mountain bike marathon or something. So the way that I would think about it, if you are experienced and you want to do it all year round, Think of it like reverse periodization. So maybe starting with intensity in the off-season and then over time just letting go and going down in the zones and intensity when you get closer to your A event. This is really because if you can handle the stress when your event is close, then you can keep running but make it light running because you really want to have specificity for the event that you're doing and that's on a bike. If it's around your event, I make it light running and I would keep it to under an hour per week, whether that's in one go or two smaller sessions and really... At the same time, remember to keep on monitoring your overall recovery closely because if there are any signs of overtraining, it should be the first thing to go. All right, the tech hacks and products section. How about a training program based on your DNA? There's a company that is now offering this genetic performance and you can go to geneticperformance.com. And as they say, athletic performance is largely influenced by your training, coaching, diet and nutrition. However, your genetics also play an important role and knowing your athletic genetic panel can help you make better decisions about training or even the event that you do. And to be honest, I don't know if... You are someone that is not vying for a world championship whether you want to know this. Maybe you do because you want to be as efficient as possible, but maybe you like the romance of thinking that you're one thing over another. If you haven't done a power test, then you can be in La La Land a little bit more, but if you've done a power test, you sort of know where you sit, then why would you bother going that step further unless you are going for a world championship of some sort? But the test itself analyzes muscle fiber type, fast and slow twitch, endurance, power, potential and recovery. It does this via 10 genetic variations which determine whether you're a sprinter or a long-distance runner, for example, and the impact of your training regime on strength, muscle metabolism and adapting to training regimes it's not cheap though it's 248 us for a test and 450 for a test and a program i haven't read many reviews on this if any at all so i don't know how specific it is to cycling but it definitely raises some interesting questions about should tests like this be done early on in someone's cycling career to figure out exactly where they go or is it beneficial at all for the type of training you do if you are in the right event. A lot of questions floating around this and I'm sure it would be beneficial to test this out a little more because at the moment it is still really unknown. Now that quote from the top of the show it is of course Andrew the Pitbull Talansky the super attack in the final stage the hold off Contador of the Dauphiné and of course taking the win. Great racing to watch. I hope this is a sign of the racing to come in the Tour de France, But speaking of the Tour de France, is Talansky a contender? I don't know if he's a contender for the 2014 Tour. I, I'd, I'm going to just say flat out no, not this year. I give him a top 10 ahead of TJ van Garderen because... America, yeah. But in all seriousness, good luck, Andrew. I really do hope to see you improve on your 10th place debut from last year and at least spice up the racing a little more than last year's Snorefest and that's it you have been listening to the SemiPro Performance Podcast remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash run to find any links used in this week's episode and from there you can sign up for your free Wheelhouse Masterclass Building the Base a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals but till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box Whichever one you're into.